0: So much of the creative process begins with wonder that you know almost every problem is for sure a storytelling problem yeah. and if stories have wonder as an essential part of the process then a storytelling problem is also a wonder problem
1: this is the act one podcast i'm your host james duke thank you for listening in today If you enjoy our podcast, then please be sure to subscribe and leave us a good review. It always helps. Our guest today is illusionist and author Harris III. I had the pleasure of interviewing Harris several months ago over Zoom, and in our conversation today, we discuss the story gatherings that Harris oversees, as well as his brand new book titled The Wonder Switch, The Difference Between Limiting Your Life and Living Your Dream. Be sure to check out the Story Gatherings at storygatherings.com, and you can pick up a copy of his book, The Wonder Switch, wherever great books are sold. Harris is a fascinating guy, so enjoy our conversation today about the importance of story and wonder. Harris, thanks for joining us, man. It's good to it's good to see you. It's been a it's been a little while.
0: Too long, but we're not allowed to <laughs> drive anywhere or fly anywhere right now, apparently. So but I'm excited to chat with you
1: seeing each other over computer has become a common occurrence for life. I know, I know. I think things, I I, I think a lot of things are going to change in business. Think of things. A lot of things are going to change in Hollywood. Um, Frank Marshall just wrote that interesting piece in the LA times about how he spent so much time as a producer, you know, traveling LA to New York, LA to New York and how he's loving, you know, these, being able to take meetings now over Zoom. And I I do think that this is, it might not become, you know, what everyone does. Yeah, Yeah. it might not become what everyone does, but knowing that it's an option, I think will actually help and will actually provide more opportunities possibly for business.
0: Yeah, which is interesting because it, It has been an option for years, right? It's just we have either resisted it or it has been viewed as subpar to what our previous option was. And man, I get both sides of the equation. If I'm honest, there's a part of me that doesn't want this to become the new normal because we really are social beings. And what takes place digitally and virtually is not a replacement for what can be transcendent and transformative in person. Um, And so I don't want to completely go to that, but I think there is a case to be made in some places to step into that new way of storytelling, which I don't want to get there too soon. But to me, that's (laughs) storytelling is not just something that we do. It's uh, it's the operating system of our brains. It's how we think as human beings. We're storytelling creatures. And so sometimes we are resistant to stepping into a new story. And sometimes the world forces us to step into that new story like it is right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah an actual forcing of everybody. The um, let's talk a little bit. So I first met you. So we have some mutual friends in common. And um, we met a couple of years ago, I had attended. um, And I want to spend some time talking about the story gatherings. And I had attended uh, one, I can't remember what year, but I had several friends that that spoke Dan Goods and Jim Kruger and a couple others. And And so, and then you and I connected and um, had a just uh, really enjoyed just spending time with you and learning more about you. And I just, I think you're such a fascinating guy. I think you live such an interesting life and you do a lot of interesting (laughs) things, but um, I love what you're doing with the story gathering. So I wonder if you could just kind of talk a little bit about, um, just kind of introduce for our audience members who don't really, maybe not, maybe not know much about. Uh, sure. both you and them kind of introduce yourself in lieu of introducing the story gatherings.
0: Yeah. Well, as a storyteller, I think the best way to introduce people to the concept of what story is, is to tell a story, ironically. <laughs> um, you know, I remember I was in my mid-20s, um, approaching 30, and uh, I mean, there's so many parts of this story we could go into. To make a long one short, as is commonly said, I had made a million dollars By the time I was 21, performing magic shows, a lot of my background was spent as a professional illusionist, did a lot of international touring around the world. And um, by 21, despite that success I'd achieved, by 22, I was bankrupt. Um, And that was a result of all these things in my own personal story and the untrue stories that I was telling myself. And it doesn't matter how much money you have, if you're trying to keep up with the Joneses and your life is driven by the applause from other people and your ability to control their perceptions. It's just, it's never enough money, right? Yeah. So I find myself broke through a long s- series of crazy events. Um, I We kind of sold everything we owned, moved to the opposite side of our city, started trying to dig out of this pile of debt and try to ask what life was all about, trying to make sense of our own story. And throughout that process years into that i was traveling around just doing what i could to use my talents to serve others instead of myself and was at the school in michigan and i was there to do uh a few magic tricks to promote an evening show that was taking place that night and so the promoter that had brought me to town was trying to sell tickets to the show and so they would say if i was in town early enough i'd go to schools do magic tricks whether that was like a a school assembly for the entire student body or just walk around the cafeteria during lunchtime. I walk in, all the students are filing in for this short show. The principal walks in and is like, Hey, you're the magician. I was like, Yeah. And he goes, Well, you know how to trick people, obviously. Why don't you go out there and tell those students how they're being tricked into making the choices they're making? And I was like, I don't, I mean, I, don't, I know how they're being tricked. Like those principles of deception that magicians use are pretty universal. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know how to, I'm not a motivational speaker. Like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I remember the show was awful. It was bleachers. <laughs> I was down on the gym floor. The sound system wasn't good. It's not an ideal environment for someone who has a performing arts background. Sure. <laughs> um, but I remember finishing the show with the straight jacket escape. I get out of the straight and I remember holding it up at the end and saying something like, I don't know if you're struggling and feeling like, you know, you're trying to fight off and get out of something. Like I felt just now trying to fight my way out of this straight jacket um, and it's not easy, but I want you to know there's always hope. I don't know what your straitjacket is, but there's always hope. And then I finished the show. Students are filing out. I'm kicking myself like most performers do about what an awful performance that was. Right. And this high school girl, she comes walking down the bleachers and she is bawling. She has tears running down her cheeks and she walks up to me and she says, Hey, can I talk to you? She said, I have something for you. I said, what is it? And I held up my hands, cupped my hands in front of her. She reached in her pocket, pulls something out and drops a razor blade into my hands and said, that's my straight jacket. And you're the only person to ever tell me that there's hope. And I don't want that anymore. Now, I had no idea what to do in that moment. I never even got that girl's name, but I will never forget the image of seeing her turn and walk away. A teacher came around the corner and was like, hey, guys, back to class. She turned and walked away. And as she walked away and I stared at her, she put her hands inside of her pockets. And I saw her forearms and she had scars up and down her forearms from that razor blade. And I became obsessed with this girl, not with her as an individual, but her story and trying to make sense of like, why would someone do something like that? Because I had struggled and struggled with abuse growing up in a lower part of the middle class family in the southeast part on Tennessee on a farm. And but, you know, I had somehow avoided a life that led me to a place of self-harm um, in situations where you would think maybe that's that could have been a part of my story. And so I'm like, how did this happen to this girl? Why would she do that? And that sent me on this research project to try to understand that type of behavior. And what I discovered was the power of story. I realized why Steve jobs said that the most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. I realized why people often summarize people like Plato who said, you know, in short that he who tells the stories rules society. I'm like, if storytellers are that powerful, someone ought to be gathering them together to have a conversation about the power that they have. And so what came out of that realization was an attempt to gather those storytellers and have that conversation. And so it turned into story gatherings. So we're primarily known for this flagship event once a year. Uh, In the past, we've had about 12 to 1500 people now on a regular basis getting together to have two days worth of conversations and innovative performances and essentially um, talks around how do we play a role in reshaping the future through the power of the stories that we tell, whether that's through film or writing or photography, or you're a communications person inside of a corporation or at a nonprofit, um, that everything is story and storytellers are the ones who shape the future. And so this year we're going virtual. So it's, I'm excited to see how we explode around the world. I was pretty that's frustrated cool. by the necessity to do that at first. And so now I'm realizing Gosh, there are there are people who are now a part of the Story community, literally around the world, who have never wow. had a chance to get on a plane and fly to the annual conference, but now, as a result of a virtual experience, will be able to participate in these conversations.
1: Wow, that's fantastic! Is this uh, still going to be in no, around October, November, or what's uh, the...
0: September? End of September, September twenty fourth and
1: twenty fifth. Yeah, excellent. September twenty fourth and twenty fifth. Very cool. So, what would if I uh, if you know I was to attend? this virtual story gathering conference, what what, what should I expect?
0: Yeah, a conversation about your role that you play in the world through your life as a storyteller. And a lot of people may not feel like they are storytellers, but everything is story. And so this sort of higher level view of story that we hold is found in the fact that we are storytelling creatures. Narrative is essentially the operating system of our brains. So my phone runs off of iOS, my brain runs off of story. (laughs) So as a storytelling creature, I walk around all day long telling myself stories to try to make sense of the world, to find meaning in things. Even if I open a spreadsheet on my computer, it may not have any words, only numbers. But those numbers are completely irrelevant unless I apply a story to them. And I'm such a storytelling creature that I do this all day long, but then I go to bed at night and even while I physically sleep, my brain stays up all night long telling myself more stories. So we storyify everything. So as, as these sort of storytelling creatures, it doesn't really matter what vocation you ascribe to or what's on your business card or what your job title is. You are living a story. And because stories are communicated through everything, you are non-verbally telling stories all day long. So we feel like this conversation is relevant to everything from teachers to filmmakers from parents to chief creative officers at of design and creative and ad agencies because everyone is living a story everyone is a storyteller now is there more value out of it if you are a creative professional who tells stories as a part of your vocation? absolutely uh, but that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant to anyone who doesn't make a living as a professional storyteller
1: uh, I love that I really love that as a as an illusionist Mm -hmm. how how do you use story in your shows what do you design your shows as one big narrative experience or are they kind of individual little stories that you tell how do you go about designing that as an illusionist
0: yeah sure well step one is to take a step back and think okay i'm not a magician who tells stories. I am a storyteller who happens to do magic tricks. Um and you know, like even on the Personal. story podcast, we talk to artists sometimes. It's like, so how did what was your original foray into storytelling? There's always this initial, like not always, but sometimes this initial, like, oh, I'm I'm not, I'm not really a storyteller. You know, I'm I'm more of this type of musician. And yeah. eventually you start peeling back the layers, layers and that person arrives at the conclusion like okay, you're right. I'm a storyteller who happens to sing songs. Um, and so you're a storyteller who happens to help people make movies. I'm a storyteller who happens to do magic tricks. And so that's that's step one, which means that I'm always telling a story. And even if I'm not intentional about the story that I want to tell, whether that's from beginning to end or a smaller, shorter story that I attach to the trick, everyone in the audience is going to leave attempting, because this is what their brain has to do, attempting to make sense of what they felt like I was trying to say to them, which means that even if I don't tell them an intentional story, they're going to tell themselves a story about what they think I was trying to say to them. And so I have to approach that craft like everyone has to approach their craft from that foundation. Now, once you get into that, I, I am now driven by purpose, meaning, and transformation. I would define transformation in any sort of change, whether that's the change of a company's culture the change that you want someone to experience after watching an entertainment-based story, such as a film or reading a nonfiction book, or the change that you want someone to experience as a speaker or a communicator or a nonfiction writer, whatever. All change and transformation I define as someone going from an old story to a new story. So the story that I'm attempting to tell... When I put on my magician hat, not that I wear a top hat while I'm doing my magic shows.
1: Oh, when, oh. When I, <laughs> come on, when come on! You gotta wear. I'm playing,
0: <laughs> I know, right? But when I'm playing that role in the world, what I'm trying to do is spark enough awe that I can turn on what I call someone's wonder switch. That I awaken someone's sense of childlike wonder, because wonder is essential to the process of going from an old story to a new story. You know, m- most human beings live as if seeing is believing, and there's nothing better on the planet than a magician to help you tell yourself a different story around the fact that seeing is not always believing right because if i make something levitate on stage or if i put someone in a box and cut them in half and put them back together again obviously i don't have a magical power to make something levitate this is not sorcery nor am i actually cutting human beings in half right <laughs> but we know that we come to a magic show and we're willing to suspend reality enough to go okay i know what i'm seeing isn't real but yet, we live as if that's true, and which is not a very good idea because human beings, we suck at figuring out what the truth is relating to what our senses perceive and what our feelings feel, which means that seeing is not always believing. You don't always get what you see. But what's more true and what all the neuroscience confirms is that believing is actually seeing, right? Mm. That what we believe has the power to change what we see. And I don't mean that in like a, you know, a, a weird like, metaphysical, attractional, like law of attraction thing where if I just believe in it hard enough, it'll appear in (laughs) front of me. But we all have a story of a friend or a family member who can't see a truth that's right in front of their face. And the reason why, and everyone else can see it, is because they believe that that particular truth exists. Roald Dahl, who wrote some of the greatest stories of our time, said, those who don't believe in magic will never find it. What that means is a lot of people are like, magic? I'll believe in magic when I see it. But if you don't believe in it you will never see it because seeing is not believing believing is seeing well then if believing is seeing, well what gives us permission to believe in something that we have yet to see well to me that's wonder and so to me the story that i'm trying to tell is to help people understand that there's a better story that they're capable and worthy of stepping into but i can't invite them to experience that transformation of going from an old story to a new story i can't invite them into stepping into that new story of possibility without turning on the wonder switch, without awakening that sense of childlike wonder that gives them permission to believe that that new story might actually be possible. Wow. So I think that answered more than what you were asking me, but that is sort of my <laughs> philosophy okay. of how I approach my craft as a magician and how I tell stories.
1: I, I'm curious how you see magic because, you know, uh, do you admire um other magicians? And if so, what is it about the craft that do you look for when you watch other magicians?
0: Yeah, I think that great art is art that tells an intentional story. It's someone expressing a story they believe to be true to the world. And so, the type of magic that I respect, and absolutely, there's so many other magicians that do this beautifully, and why I feel like they have earned my respect is because they are basically saying, hey, magic is a metaphor and the medium is the message. And so what can magic serve as a metaphor of? And there's nothing more beautiful than taking something old and making it new or taking something that's beautiful and destroying it and putting it back together again or taking something that we really want and finding a way to make it appear. But that's even cooler if you take something that is beautiful and make it disappear so that people crave it only to make it reappear again Uh. and so magic if you really think about it it's all these little beautiful stories i take someone i put them in a box i cut them in half and then i put them back together again that is a three-act structure in the form of a magic trick and so the magicians that i respect and admire are the people who are using magic as that way to tell a really beautiful story even if it's not a literal like hey guys gather around once upon a time right it may not have to be that but they are sparking people's wonder Sparking their curiosity, which I think of curiosity is just wonder in action. So they're they're helping people believe that more is possible than they did before. Now that does not mean because the cynics among us will hear maybe be like, "Oh, so you're doing magic to convince people that magic is real. Yes, in a sense, not not to get to the convince them to believe that what they're seeing us do on stage is real, because those are just tricks, those are just illusions. But to try to convince them that that thing that they felt, that sense of childlike wonder they felt when they witnessed something that they previously thought was impossible, that that magic is real, that that feeling of magic is real, that there's something transcendent, that there's more going on than what we can see, smell, taste, touch, and ear. And if you get a taste of that, maybe you will pursue it in your life. Now, the opposite of that equation is, you know, pick a card. I bet I can find your card. Was this your card? And then if that was your card, I bet you don't know how I did that trick. Yeah. That is the equivalent of a party prank. You know? <laughs> that is that is like walking up to someone and saying, "Let me show you how awesome I am. I bet I'm going to do this, and you're going to be in awe of me." Yeah. And so the the greatest magic, in my opinion, is not a piece. Not, it's not an experience that you create that leaves someone going, "Um, you know, man, that guy's so cool. I don't know how he did that, or he really yeah. fooled me, or he got one over on me." It's something that leaves someone in so much awe that they're so distracted by so many other positive and beautiful and rich feelings that they don't immediately jump to, I have to understand how you did that because it wasn't about a mental puzzle that is trying to be solved. It was about an emotional experience that made them feel things that led them back to a place of childlike wonder.
1: Wow. That's really good. Hey, let's nerd out a little bit on some magic. Tell, Okay. Give me the, the, how do you create a magic trick? Where, where, where do you start? Give us a little bit of your insights into what, <laughs> what how how a magician. You know, you can't give away any of your secrets. We know that. Um, how where do you where does an idea for a magic trick come from? You know, and, and what's the process? Do you seek to like? Do you start first with the um, the illusion, and you say to yourself, "I want to do this thing," and then work backwards from it, or how does that work?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I produce magic tricks the same way we produce films, the same way that you write books. It's all about, first of all, what story do I want to tell? And what metaphor am I going to use to tell that story? And that's what gravitates me towards the actual trick that I want to do. From that point, that begins the next step of the creative process, which is well, how do I create this trick? How do I do something that looks impossible that's not? And the creative process for magicians is pretty different from a lot of other people's creative process. And that is we do not brainstorm in the realm of what is possible because in the world of magic, anything is possible. Mm. And by that, again, I don't mean that, okay, if I want to make something levitate, it doesn't mean that I actually have the power to make it levitate. Right. So I still have to operate within the realm of possibility, which is I don't have the power to make something levitate, but anything is possible in the sense that I can create the illusion of something levitating. And therefore we start with, wow, way before we get to how, and, and a lot of times we, you know, to me, wow is connected to wonder. So, yeah. so much this, which is why so much of this conversation and my work is really about this intersection between wonder and storytelling. Yeah. But you know, our creative process is we have to let that moment of wow breathe. And I talk a lot about this in the book, the wonder switch is how so many people have a tendency to push through um, the wow part of the creative process to immediately jump to the how part of the creative process, because a lot of people on our teams, and a lot of us have been conditioned to be obsessive over the how part. And a lot of really great ideas have been howled to death just because we didn't let wonder breathe. We didn't let the wow part of the process run its course. And so magicians, we leave plenty of room for wow. So when I'm coming up with a new trick and you think, wouldn't it be awesome if whatever that fill in the blank is, is not immediately responded with, well, how are we going to pull that off? Because we know there's a way and we're just going to get there later. And so because anything is possible using magic tricks and Mm -hmm. the art of illusion, Mm -hmm. we just sort of brainstorm with what's the most magical experience that we could possibly create. And then once we feel like that part of the brainstorming process has run its course, then and only then do we reverse engineer it and start figuring out the how part. And if more people (laughs) did that in other creative art forms, we would end up in places that blew our minds, because yeah. we are so much more capable of more than we realize, simply because we jump to how too soon. Does that make um, sense?
1: Yeah, and it, it's fa- it, it's it's a fascinating creative process because you're right. That's not the way <laughs> anybody else does. <laughs> no, it. we start
0: with well, like what's the budget and what is possible within <laughs> that budget, and then we okay. create within those constraints. Or we go, what are the political ramifications of telling this type of story to this type of audience? And I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. And so how do we do this? And we basically end up playing it safe, or we operate within the constraints that we feel like we've been offered. But who is offering those constraints? And the people that end up breaking all the rules and blowing our minds are usually the people who had the same constraints that were given to us, who just started with wow instead of jumping to how too soon, right?
1: Yeah, wow. Because you know so much about the art of magic, and you, like, when you're watching another illusionist, are you able to just enjoy it? Or is your mind constantly, you know, doing that process (laughs) where you're like, okay, well, they're doing this, or okay, well, they're doing that, or are you looking yeah. for the are you actually able to sit back because you know even for those of us like sometimes it can be hard for us to watch a film or so a TV hard, show yeah. without breaking it down you know
0: yeah it's a dance right like i i i like that tension i don't personally like it but i like talking about <laughs> uh and encouraging others to honor that tension and like <laughs> none of us like it and and Like to give ourselves some grace, like we have been sort of psychologically reprogrammed to feel uncomfortable with that tension, right? Because like, if you look, if you're sitting in a magic show and I do something and you don't understand how it works, what's your natural tendency? Most young people in my audiences, their natural tendencies are in their pockets, pull out their phone and Google it. Right. And so it's like, okay, I just watched you make a table levitate. I have to understand how you made the table fly. So they pull out their (laughs) phones and they Google flying table (laughs) trick and they can watch a 30 second YouTube video Uh that explains how it's done because some 17 year old kid who has wealthy parents has bought them a $3,000 magic trick. Um, and then instead of learn- spending the six to 12 months of practice <laughs> to learn how to execute it on a stage in front of people, they're now turning it into, well, I can't perform it for you, but here's the secret. I'm turning it into an instructional video on YouTube, right? Oh I'm God. not bitter at all. If you can't tell about <laughs> <these> <laughs> scenarios, but what has happened is not only have we now grown up in the information age, we now carry access to the secret to anything and a device in our pockets. And that has reconditioned us to feel really uncomfortable with mystery. Now, think about that in the context of 100 years ago. 100 years ago, if you saw something amazing, what were your options? You couldn't Google it. Couldn't reach into your pocket for your smartphone. You couldn't even go to a local library, in most cases, and look it up in an encyclopedia. And even if you could, there were too many friction points and you wouldn't have, right? So just by default, our hands were kind of tied and we were forced to just you're just going to have to get comfortable with not knowing everything. You're just going to have to get comfortable in coming in contact with something magical, an experience that you can't put into words, and not have to have the answer to how it worked. And as a result, we were totally fine being in wonder and awe of things. And now we don't like to be in awe of things because it feels humbling. And so, therefore, we've turned into these little crushers of our own wonder that don't permit us to live in mystery. Um, and so, it's, it makes a lot of sense in a year like 2020 Um, that it's really hard to go to a movie and just turn off that part of your brain and just be in awe of the experience. But at the end of the day, that's what great storytellers do, which is to answer your question, that's what great magicians do for me. Now, as I'm venturing out of my career as a magician and doing less and less magic and more speaking and writing and producing, now I'm trying to develop and cultivate a life of wonder. So when I go to the Magic Castle in LA, or when I watch a magic video on the internet I'm trying to turn off that part of my brain that's trying to figure out how everything works so I can feel the way it feels to be in awe of something again. So I can feel that sense of wonder again. So I go back to the way I felt when I was a little kid because that wonder is transformative to every other part of my life. Now there's some cool studies coming out of UC Berkeley that are even saying that that wonder, feelings of that awe that we experience in response to a great film or magic trick can do things like decrease our stress boost our immune systems decrease chronic inflammation in our body wow. a new study even shows that if we don't have an experience of awe at least once every few days our ability to empathize and emotionally connect with it, the other human being starts to decrease wow. you almost get a sense that our bodies are wired for that wonder that we're created for it and if that's the case why would we do everything in our power to crush it by trying to explain how everything works instead of just sitting back allowing ourselves to be absorbed by the story and to soak up all of that magic.
1: Wow. That's great. Do you, I'm, I'm assuming you talk about some of this in your, in your upcoming book, right? Is that, is that some of the, is this some of the conversation you, you do? Yeah. With?
0: Yeah. The yeah. wonder switch is all about that. How do we go from an old story into a new story and how is a wonder switch at the center of that process?
1: What is, um, so talk a little bit about the wonder switch. What is the wonder switch and, and what, what's the, what was the, um, what was the reason why you decided to write this book now?
0: Yeah, because, you know, I wanted to step into a new story of possibility. And when I have started talking to other people, whether it was through our mastermind groups or just story attendees, and, you know, you start seeing when your wonder is wide awake, you start seeing so much potential that is unfilled and unfulfilled and untapped in others. Um, And you're like, why are they not stepping into this, this story that's like beckoning them and whispering to them and calling for them? And it's because of the cynicism. They've grown complacent because their curiosity died. And so what their brain is saying is like, well, I don't like the way that story ends. Like Their imagination, this sort of virtual reality storytelling tool about the future that they have is always active. I used to think that our imagination was super active when we were little kids and then we grow up and it sort of becomes less active. And so you hear a lot of people on create who talk about creativity. They're like, oh, you got to tap back into your, you know, your imagination. I interact with adults every single day who have wild active imaginations. They're just using them to fear and worry and be anxious oh. about all the potential things that could possibly go wrong. Well, wow. what's happening in those scenarios? Their imagination is actively telling stories about the future. That's what our imagination does. Creates images that haven't happened yet that exist in the future. It is our storytelling tool uh, that serves as our sort of virtual reality flight simulator, right? And so if our imaginations are already active, but if that worry is a misuse of imagination, well, then it takes the same amount of creative energy to spend your imagination creating a different story. So then when I talk to people and go, why don't you step into that story or why don't you create a different story? It just comes down to belief. So many people just don't believe that it's possible. They don't believe that they have what it takes to finish a screenplay. They don't believe they have what it takes to write a book. They don't believe they have what it takes to find the funding or the resources they need to go shoot that documentary that they've been wanting to create for 10 years. And so what is that belief? How do we give birth to that belief? What gives you permission to believe? And in my own life, it kept coming back to that sense of wonder, so I started, started studying the neuroscience and the psychology behind it all. And what I realized is that there's almost like this switch and it, it's probably more like a fader or a dimmer switch. It doesn't instantly just like snap <laughs> on and off, but it is as almost as if we're sitting in a dark room and someone's going, well, if you turn on the lights and show me what's possible, well, then I'll believe you. But again, wow. being a magician has taught me that seeing is not believing. Yeah. So if we can turn a, that wonder switch on, it gives us permission to believe. And then we will be willing to step into what we're actually capable of creating. And so, yeah, the wonder switch is all about, you know, that that switch toggles how we use our imagination. Um, The wonder switch being on allows us to live curious lives and allows our creativity to be more curious, which, again, all the research connects creativity to curiosity. And if curiosity is just wonder in action, it really keeps coming back to that essential thing is wonder. And so my hope is that people begin to understand that, you know, it's funny cause everyone's talking about the word essential right now. Who's an essential right. worker? Who's not an essential right. worker. If I would have, when you talk to about, about wonder to the average person, it's like, Oh yeah. wonder, it feels good to be in wonder. Like no one is really anti wonder. We just don't but, view it as an essential part of our creative process. No,
1: it, 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 it feels like an emotional dessert. <laughs> right yeah, that's a great way
0: of thinking.
1: <laughs> right like, like yeah. when you you know when you, you know you, you kind of don't know if it's necessarily uh needs to yeah. be a part of your daily diet but it's nice but you're arguing that it that it is.
0: Yeah what if it's one of those nutrients that you need and not yeah. just what if but like what the science is showing us is that it is and, and neuroscience is young enough already as it is but we're just now getting around to studying what, what probably felt like, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I don't know how this works, but what I can only assume felt like an optional field of study. It's like, well, no, let's, it'd be great if we could help people with their mental health. Let's study addiction. Let's study shame. Let's study all these things that we feel like we need to understand. Okay, now we've got some margin. Let's start studying awe. Let's study wonder. Um, and so now that we're getting to what might have been some of the optional forms of study, what we're discovering is that they're essential, that they're a part of our core makeup of who we are as human beings, that our bodies um, are wired and that whether we're awake to wonder or not can even shift our physiology and help us stay healthy.
1: Wow. I I love that. You know, it makes me think of um, someone was telling me one time um, when someone's struggling with depression, oftentimes they want to close the windows, you know, close the blinds on the windows, keep everything dark. And they said, sometimes the best thing you can do when you're fighting depression is to open the curtains and let the light in. And, and, um, and I said, um, Oh yeah, that makes sense because light, you know, the the sun can actually improve your outlook. And they said, yes, but that's not the only thing they said, you open the window shades, not just so they can get sun, but that they can get perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a sense, I feel like some of what you're saying is awe and wonder enable us to have better perspective in our lives.
0: Yeah. It's like turning on the lights. That's the Uh, metaphor I use in the book. That's why I call it a switch. So uh, yeah, I think you're exactly
1: right. What is it that you think is actually going to transform in people? Are they just going to have a better day right like like, is this this going to improve their (laughs) outlook right but like what is the what is the fundamental shift that you're arguing will take place if we embrace odd wonder more
0: it's a big one are you ready for
1: this (laughs) i'm ready go for it
0: everything that you want okay and the reason why is you know socrates says that wisdom begins in wonder and my opinion is if i had wisdom not only could i have everything that i want probably what i want would even change right so, when you walk up to someone, average stranger on the street, someone you sit next to an airplane, what do you want? If you could have anything you want, what would you have? Someone might say a million dollars, a billion dollars. It tends to go to like the physical things. But when you start peeling the layers back and go a little bit deeper, you realize okay, so it's not really money that you want, it's what that money gives you. What does that money give you? Is it freedom? Is it escaping from the debt that you feel like you're buried under? Um, is it that you don't want to feel alone anymore and you feel like that money will give you a lifestyle that will attract friends and make you popular? And so what I like about wisdom is, well, if I had wisdom, I could probably figure it out how to get anything that I want. But what's beautiful about wisdom is in the process, wisdom has a tendency to make you healthier or at least guide you towards a passive health and it changes what you want. And so if wisdom begins in wonder, then I think there's a case to be made for the fact that well, that means everything potentially has a chance to begin and wonder. And wonder is not like a drug. It's not a pill that you pop and all of a sudden, right. you know, it solves all the problems in your life. To me, it's just a part of that beckoning, that becoming, that willingness to step into a new story. And if if there's a new story that you're struggling to step into or that you don't believe is possible, but other people are possible, or maybe you still you feel stuck in this old story, Well, something told you that old story. That old story was born out of something. And so a lot of the process of reawakening wonder actually has to do with doing some pretty radical Mm self-inquiry into the thing that is crushing our wonder, Mm -hmm. right? Which means to venture backwards. Um, I have this thing I created called the transformation map. And essentially, it's this circle that shows the cycle of going from an old story to a new story. And on either sides of the circle is an inciting incident. We all have an inciting incident. Sometimes it can be something that um, we incite on our own that becomes a catalyst for negative change or something that happens to us that we weren't expecting that can serve as either trauma or a catalyst for positive change. And so to go from an old story to a new story, either way requires some sort of inciting incident. It's just, is it positive and therefore sparks some awe and leads us back to a place of wonder or is it negative, and therefore it's an experience of trauma that leads us to a place of addiction or shame? And if, if it's a place of shame, if trauma turns into shame and we don't heal from that trauma, well, it gives birth to these untrue stories that we tell ourselves. It gives birth to lies. And those stories that we tell ourselves, the things that we have adopted as true, whether they're actually true or not, that's what breaks our narrative. And that narrative that we adopt as true is what drives all human behavior, it drives all of the culture of every studio in LA. It drives all the culture of every fortune 500 company in America. Right. It drives the culture of every family in their home. Right. And it, that narrative drives all the choices and decisions that I make on an individual level as a human being. Yeah. Well, if that narrative gets broken as a result of trauma that leads to shame, that leads to lies that give birth to untrue stories. Well, now I get stuck in that old story and now I slip into a place of cynicism. Yeah. I start using my imagination to worry instead of to create a beautiful thing about the future. And if I stay in that place long enough, eventually I settle. I I settle for this counterfeit that seems real, but is it really real? Or I've simply adopted it as real because I feel like it's all I have to work with. And then I get stuck in complacency. And so instead of being driven by curiosity and living a creative life, I just settle. I get stuck in complacency and I just sort of check out and coast. And so to me, the art of living an amazing life is really about the art of waking up. And so we have to have another inciting incident. It can come out of nowhere sometimes. It could be a great film or reading a great book or going to a magic show or the conversation with a friend or stopping for a second and turning off our phones and looking up at the stars. These things can serve as sparks that leave us in awe that slowly start to fade that wonder switch back on that can give birth to that new story again
1: let's kind of define story a little bit more. Let's drill down a little bit because, you know, oftentimes when you we talk like this um, story is, is always positive or hopeful or whatever. But, but the truth is, is there's some really hard stories that need to be told, right? There's some, Indeed. we're, we're, you know, we're living, we're living in the middle of a very hard story right now. This, this, this without getting, you know, any kind of political kind of thing going on. But um, there's a lot of people of color who are who are saying that um, those of us who are not, uh, who are white, are not listening to their story. And it's a harsh story. It's a real story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it might not be a story that we're comfortable with talking about, but it's there. Mm-hmm. It's real. Where does that fit in all this? When you, when you talk about there's, you know, you have stories to tell. What about the hard stories? What about the difficult stories?
0: I mean, we may not think of "quote unquote" hard stories as a part of the process back to a place of wonder, Um, but it it absolutely is because it requires us to come face to face with the truth. Like the only way to correct untrue stories that people are telling themselves is to tell them stories of truth. And sometimes that's really hard. And those stories of truth require us to go back and look at ourselves in the mirror and face our own lies and demons and ghosts that have been following us around and whispering lies into our ears. And so it's an essential part of the process. But I also think that is the birthplace of hope. You know, that's what MLK did uh, when he stepped up to a microphone and said, I have a dream. If you, if, if he had a business card and you were sitting next to him on a plane, it's like, well, so what do you do for a living? You didn't know who he was, you know, I don't, what would people consider him a public speaker, an order, a reverend, an activist, a lot of different things, right? Probably not storyteller, but I think he was playing the role of a storyteller when he gave the, I have a dream speech. Um, think about what there's a scene in saving Mr. Banks mm-hmm. or Tom Hanks at the very, very, towards the end of the movie. Um, Tom playing, Hanks as is playing Disney and he leans in and he says, that's what we storytellers do. We restore order with imagination and instill hope again and again and again. So what storytellers do is restore order, which means there must be something broken,
1: yeah.
0: with imagination, yeah. and instill hope, so that, that product is hope. So when he walked up to a microphone, when MLK said, I have a dream, what he was doing is he was doing what Disney was talking about in that film. He was painting a picture of a world that didn't exist yet, but the only way I can help you imagine that world is to tell you a story, to get you to imagine it with me, and then he did what great storytellers do, which he, he didn't just tell, he, did, he told the truth and said, what if we could do better? Here's this imagination thing. Here's this dream that I have. It's not real yet. It's just a dream. But then I'm going to extend my hand and I'm going to invite you to come be a character in that story. I want you to help me make this dream a reality. I want you to help me to create this new and better world. And so it requires both. It requires a facing the facts, a telling of the truth. But then it requires us to, if we want to restore order and tell the truth about things that are broken, we have to do that by stirring people's imaginations to what could be. Because what is the alternative of that? The alternative is just the rejection of that idea because it doesn't offer someone a new story to step into. So it goes back to if all change and transformation is driven by going from an old story to a new one, We have to tell the current story, but that requires us to step into something called liminal space, which is a part of storytelling that a lot of people don't talk about. It's in every film. They're just not aware of it. Um, It's often a spiritual concept, but liminal space is kind of that space between the no longer and the not yet. And architects have talked about it from the perspective of their physical liminal spaces. If you walk into a hotel, you you enter into the lobby, but then you have to walk hallways. You have to ride on an elevator. Those are liminal spaces. Well, what's the purpose of that liminal space what is liminality but then also from a spiritual context you know oftentimes we are stepping out of something old or feel called out of something old and into something new but oftentimes that old thing hangs around for a little while yeah. and that new thing that we feel called to isn't fully realized I have a friend who calls it hell in the hallway. Right, <laughs> you stepped out of a you stepped out of a room because you thought another door was open, but you kind of feel trapped in the hallway. Yeah. Well, that is liminal space—the space between no longer and not yet. So, why is liminal space so uncomfortable? It's the dark night of the soul. It's the messy middle. The reason why it's so comfortable is begin. It goes back to the fact that we are storytelling creatures. So, if I'm going from an old story to a new story but I haven't bridged the gap yet and the new story hasn't come to fruition. Right now I have no story. And if we have no story, we don't know who we are. So I think there's a season of liminal space that we as a culture are in right now where there is a dissatisfaction with going back to what has been and we don't like where we are. And there's beginning to be some stories of people who are Going, hey, this is what the future could look like. And there's a section of our culture that is bought into that and going, okay, I want to get there. I don't know how to get there. I'm starting to listen, which I think is probably what we need to do a lot more of. Probably less talking and playing expert, a little bit more listening. But if it's not realizable, like it feels like we're trapped and it feels like we're not making progress as quickly as we'd like. And so that's where it feels like we have no story. But in the places where it feels like we have no story, it doesn't mean that the stories aren't being told, and so it's important that we just honor that space between, that we become comfortable in the liminal space, that we honor the magic that can be found between the no longer and the not yet.
1: Mm. I love that. Uh, yeah, I think um, unfortunately there are many people stuck in that hallway. Yes, and um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think uh, we have to we have to do a better job of helping them into the next room. Y- when you um, what what storytellers have you encountered that have surprised you that you have, you didn't see it coming. Like you, 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 you were like, man, I, I, you know, I, sh- I should have been open to the idea that I could have, you know, learned a great and valuable story from this person. But I, but, but man, I, I, I didn't see it coming. Any, 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 uh, moments like that can, that you can think of that you could share with us.
0: Oh man. I don't know if I have any good answers to that question. Um, you know, I, Every year when the Oscars roll around, there's always, you know, a lump of films that leave me scratching my head. And there's Mm -hmm. another good handful of films that are like, yes, that's where that that is the future of storytelling. Um, And so that gets me excited because it feels like we're finally discontent enough as a culture with the old stories that we've been living that we are giving platform to storytellers that are offering us new visions of the future that are staring our imaginations in new creative ways and that's what I feel like we need more of so i think it's it's less it's less of a it's less of a specific person or list of names of storytellers and what i get more excited about is a shift overall away from a an advertising culture that is driven by inadequacy marketing where every brand is obsessed with trying to identify uh, or create a problem in my life. And they have to create that problem and desire in order to create the void that they think they can fill. And in the entertainment industry, you know, moving away from purely creating films and telling stories that serve as an escape and telling stories and creating films that offer the hope of creating new realities that we no longer need to escape from. Yeah, I, I think cinema will always be filled with, um, some escapism. And I think a part of that is actually kind of healthy. It's okay to suspend reality and, you know, allow your imagination to go on a journey with a great storyteller. Uh, but I also think that we need a little bit more reality in a world that is often driven by things that aren't very real (laughs) and in a, in in an industry that's filled with facade and masks and veneer to strip some of that back and to fill it with raw truth yeah, that can guide us to some better places.
1: I I, I wonder if there is a um, a distinction without a difference here, uh, but perhaps there is with wonder and awe versus, say, excitement. Right? You know, and 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 you know, there was that whole kind of kerfuffle um, out here when Scorsese wrote that op-ed about Marvel films, and he <laughs> he called them roller coaster rides. Right? He said there. Or he said, or I think he called them theme park rides. Right? And some people agreed with him, so a lot of people disagreed with him. But kind of to your point of uh, this, I, this concept of wonder and awe, part of Hollywood's problem right now, and we've had it for a while, is this incessant need to just constantly remake things. And I, I would make the argue, based on kind of, you know, our conversation here today, I'd make the argument that the thing that's missing in these remakes is wonder and awe, you know, like they, they, they can have the spectacle, they can have the excitement, but what's missing is the wonder and awe of of what it was really like to create something out of nothing instead of just a remake of something that already was.
0: Uh, I, I think you can have experiences of awe without awakening wonder. And I would relate those experiences of awe um, back towards spectacle it 's the perfect word that you used. Um, I, my friend John Booker and I had this conversation he 's out in l a great oh, yeah I, yeah. You guys great. should know about yeah. um, he 's a genius, and what he and I were talking about is how spectacle can sort of be manufactured, but wonder can 't yeah. um, and so you know a great example that comes to mind right now is you know the experience of going to Disney World or Disneyland. Yeah. Um, I went to Disney World a bunch of times. Um, and stood in front of the castle and watched the fireworks show. Um, And they are certainly great at spectacle. They're certainly great at um, allowing that spectacle to lead to experiences of awe, but maybe not awaken my wonder. But then, fast forward, now I go back and I'm standing on that same concrete that we call Disneyland in front of that same castle watching the same, you know, explosions in the sky <laughs> the same fireworks um but all of a sudden it's transformative for me and i had an experience of wonder well what made the difference was having a 4-year-old boy sitting on my yep. shoulders
1: yep absolutely because
0: the story that was being told to me was experienced from a different perspective right yep. and i was seeing the world through his eyes and so now that experience of awe was deeper Um, and it led to a reawakening of wonder and that, that is transformative. So I think it has to do with telling a story. Magic trick is the same thing. There are magicians who take a trick and fool someone with it. And someone goes, wow, that was amazing. It's a spectacle. Or I take that same magic trick and I intentionally tell a story through it and create an experience that's beautiful. Well, now I move beyond spectacle and mere awe to an experience of amazing awe that can lead to wonder. Right. Um, and I think that's the difference between the two as it relates to Scorsese and some other opinions like that on Hollywood. <laughs> look, I'm, I'm as big of a fan of Scorsese as they come. Um, but like my, my son disagrees with him about those Marvel right. movies right. Um, because they spark his awe. They spark his wonder. And the case I would make is the conversations that he and I have when I put him to bed at night after we watch a movie like that. Because yeah. they're rich in character and opportunities to talk about what it means to be a hero, yeah. um, and so I think it depends on which lens you look at it through. If you're looking at it through a lens of, um, you know, cinema as this art form that needs to be preserved and we need to not make it shallow and needs to not just be about mere spectacle, well, that takes empathy out of the equation. What really makes a story worth, as Rick Recadall, my friend who used to be at DreamWorks, um, mm-hmm used would once told me is that you know people like stories that they can find themselves in and so it's how do i empathize with that character that's on the screen and so if you're not resonating with the film it just means that that character is not resonating with you like i i personally um, did not see myself in the shoes of the black panther but how many little boys of color around the country did And how transformative was it for them to see a hero on a big screen that looked like them? And how does that change the story that they potentially live out based on the way it sparks their wonder and invites them into something new? So, yeah, does Hollywood have a wonder problem? Yes, I think the amount of remakes (laughs) that are pouring out of it absolutely shows that I have a wonder problem. But that's relevant to us all. If you have a screenwriting problem, it's probably because you have a wonder problem, not a talent problem. Yeah. Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of other facets to developing a skill, yeah. but so much of the creative process begins with wonder.
1: Yeah.
0: That you know, almost every problem is for sure a storytelling problem, yeah. and if stories have wonder as an essential part of the process, then a storytelling problem is also a wonder problem.
1: You know, I think it's fascinating. That here I sit as a you know as a filmmaker and a lover of film and lover of television. And some of the greatest storytellers that I know are dancers or choreographers. Yep. And just goes to your point that great stories are all around us and we're all storytellers. And and I and, and the reason why I think specifically about those choreographers and those dancers is. What they end up creating for me is a. Not, and, and to be clear, I'm not talking about all choreographers and all dancers, um, but uh, there's some in particular that I. They, what what they would create in me, when I would watch, them dance, was wonder. They were mm-hmm. they were telling a story, that, opened my eyes up. Uh, and it was like you said, it was more than spectacle, it was more than awe uh, there would sometimes be in that but but mostly it was mostly it was the power of empathy, finding yourself inside of that story, finding some part of you inside of that story mm-hmm. what do you what what can we do to um be more open to the, the, the new stories that other people are telling.
0: Sure. Yeah. I think we have to be willing to put ourselves on the page. And by that, I mean, we, we become better storytellers when we come to grips with the reality of our own stories. And so many of us are trying to, you know, we're trying to sort of escape from our own stories by writing the stories that you know, we wish we could tell about our own lives, but without venturing back into the deep, dark places of our past. Um, so much of this reminds me of my conversation with Linda Wolverton on stage at Story last year. Um, she's the only female screenwriter with a sole writing credit on a mm. film that has grossed more than a billion dollars at the box office. And it was really? for Alice in Wonderland, which everyone wow. thinks is a Tim Burton film, and it was. Yeah. Um, but she wrote the script, and then Tim Burton was then hired to bring that script to life, and so right. she deserves as much credit as he does. Um, but she also wrote Beauty and the Beast almost single-handedly. Yeah. Uh, she wrote on Lion King, she wrote Homeward Bound, um, Maleficent, a lot of really great classic movies. And you know, when we were talking to her about those stories, Belle was the embodiment. She was a different kind of princess. Um, and even Alice from Alice in Wonderland, that Tim Burton version of that film, you know, it was set in a Victorian society where there were all these expectations of the what was expected out of a young uh, female growing up in that era. And that version of Alice was completely opposite of all those expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was it was her way of putting herself on the screen. We, we got into Lion King and she said Mufasa was her dad or um, maybe the dad that she never had, she felt like. And then I was like, well, what about Homeward Bound? Like thinking that was going to throw her <laughs> off guard. How do you explain Homeward Bound? And I remember the audience laughing, but then her talking about that was her childhood pets. And so it's like she puts herself on the page and this willingness to go to the dark places of her own experiences of the stories that she's lived and to bring those experiences onto the page and write them into the stories that she's trying to tell. Um, you know, like we... When, when we are willing to be vulnerable, we don't struggle to connect with other human beings. Yeah. And a lot of us aren't vulnerable because we want to build trust first. So we think, well, I'll be vulnerable once I trust somebody or feel like I can trust them. But trust is actually built through acts of vulnerability. And so we have no problem being, or we have no problem connecting with others, with finding empathy with others when they're being vulnerable or we're being vulnerable with them. So why do we not take that same train of thought and put it in the storytelling process? Um, it's not hard to empathize with a character that you create on a screen when that character is being vulnerable in a way that you would be vulnerable with your own story.
1: Harris. Good stuff, man. Really, really good stuff. Thank you so much for just spending some time with us today. And uh, I think you gave, um, I think you gave us a lot to think about and a lot to process. And uh, I hope people run out and grab your book when it comes out. And, um, (laughs) And, uh, yeah. so- sign up for, uh, sign up for the, the story gathering and, and continue these conversations. This is, uh, this is really important stuff.
0: Yeah. Thanks, man. I'll finish by saying, uh, first of all, you know, story 2020.com is where you find details about the conference. The book is already available on pre-order on Amazon. You just go to Amazon and type in my name, Harris the Third, and the wonder switch, which is the name of the book. Uh, but more importantly than all that stuff is the work that you guys are doing through acts one and beyond. Um, I agree with Steve jobs. The most powerful person in the world is the storyteller. And while that is everyone, not everyone is honing their skills as a storyteller to tell them intentionally uh, better than the people that are in your community and the people that we're trying to serve through story. And if they're the most powerful people in the world, man, with that power comes this really great responsibility because so many parts of our world need a new story right now. And you guys have the the ability to offer that and to stir people's imaginations to reawaken their wonder um and as you know disney so beautifully said in saving mr banks that's what storytellers do they restore order and there's a bunch of things that are broken and so we need you guys to restore order with imagination and instill hope again and again and again so i'm a huge fan man keep doing what you're doing it's so important
1: brother. I'm a big fan of yours as well. And um, I would try to close all these with uh, uh, being able to pray for our guests. So it'd be okay with you if we uh, pray for you real quick.
0: And no one, You'd be a fool to turn down prayer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'll take all I can get. <laughs> Absolutely. That's great. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for today and thank you for Harris. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his passion. Thank you for his giftings and thank you for his generosity. God, I pray right now that you um, bless him, bless his marriage, bless his family, his relationship with his wife and children. God, I pray that you would um, bless his work. I pray that you would um, continue to put him in more and more spaces where he can um, continue to shout from the mountaintops um, this need for wonder that we all need and um, the power of great storytelling. And um, just thank you for this opportunity. And we pray this in Jesus' name, your promises we stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. To learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com.